Hi, Carl Ellis from Redeemer Seminary in Dallas, Texas again. Uh, Today I want to talk about Islam and the African-American community. Now, the last time I was with you, I talked about developments before the 20th century. And the key to understanding how Islam got uh, its foothold in the African-American community is to understand that by the end of the 19th century, uh, there developed a theological vacuum in terms of empowerment and its related issues. If you remember, we were talking about there was this, this, this concern for empowerment. And the, the related issues were, these are cultural core issues. Uh, these are cultural core concerns. And these concerns were in the area of dignity, identity, and significance. In the 19th century, the church did a remarkable job of addressing those things, and that partly explains the rapid growth of the church in the 19th century. But as the 20th century uh, was approaching, in the last 25 years of the, of the 19th century, three traumas uh, really knocked the church off balance. The first was the, the end of the, post-reconstru- uh, the post-Civil War Reconstruction. The second were the effects of the Industrial Revolution in the North. And, and then the third was the uh, consolidation of colonial power in sub-Saharan Africa, which devastated the extensive missions involvement of African Americans on the continent. <clears throat> so with that theological uh, vacuum in place, the church no longer addressed the concerns, the core cultural concerns of dignity, identity, and significance. And so as a result, as the 20th century began, Others moved in to try to fill that vacuum. And among them were what I call the black nationalist Islamic groups. And they specifically attempted to deal with the issues of or the concerns of dignity, identity, and significance. The first Islamic sect to emerge in the African-American context was the Moorish Science Temple Divine and National Movement of North America. It was founded by a man named Timothy Drew, who later changed his name to Noble Drew Ali. It was founded in 1913 in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, In 1925, the sect was changed, shortened to the Moorish Temple of Science. And and then it continued, and I'll I'll give you some more detail about uh, what happened. But suffice it to say that after uh, the death of uh, Noble Drew Ali... Uh, there developed uh, uh, two groups, uh, one um, called the Morris Temple of Science and the other called the Temple of Islam. Now, the Temple of Islam was founded by W.D. Fard in 1930. And I'll tell you more about him later on. But uh, so you have the oldest group, which is the Morris Temple of Science. And, uh, and of all the 17 Islamic groups in the African-American context, uh, most of them, probably 13 of them, maybe 14, can directly or indirectly trace their roots back to the Moorish Temple of Science. Now, W.D. Fard claimed to be a reincarnation of Noble Jew Ali, but we'll talk about that again uh, uh, later on. The next group uh, that was related was called the Nubian Islamic Hebrews, founded by a man named Isa Muhammad in 19... Um, in 1970. And then in 1975, there was a split in the Morris Temple of Science, and the, uh, the group that split away 
recaptured the old name, the Morris Science Temple Divine and National Movement of North America, founded by Grand Sheik Richardson Dingle L. in 1975. And then we have the, uh, the Lost Found Nation of Islam in the Wilderness of North America, founded by Elijah Muhammad in 1933. He, in essence, uh, uh, succeeded uh, W.D. Fard. And when he succeeded W.D. Fard, what happened was that there was a split in the, in the two. You know, there were two factions there, one called the Temple of Islam, who believed that W.D. Fard was a prophet of Allah, and then there was a nation, the Lost Foundation of Islam in the Wilderness of North America, headed by Elijah Muhammad, who thought that W.D. Fard was Allah himself. Of course, the name of, that, of the, uh, the Lost Foundation of Islam in the Wilderness of North America was shortened to just the Nation of Islam. And at its height... The Nation of Islam had about a half a million uh, adherents. Now, after the death of Elijah Muhammad, Warith Dean Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, took the sect, uh, took over, he became the leader, and he took the sect through several name changes. And as he was taking them these, through these name changes, he was actually changing it into an orthodox group. So the first name change came uh, when they called it the Belilian Community named after Belial, who was a slave of Muhammad at the time he, he captured uh, uh, Mecca. And then uh, the name was later changed to the World Community of Al-Islam in the West, or better known as the WCIW. And then it was changed to the American Muslim Mission. And about 1985 then, uh, the sect was decentralized, and, uh, and now the sect is known by, known by the name the Muslim American Society. So what has happened is that what used to be the Nation of Islam, organizationally, has been transformed into a Sunni Islamic group. And, uh, and uh, of course, most of those who were in the nation uh, originally became also Orthodox. And it is by far the largest of the Islamic groups in the African American community. Now... Let's look at the theological descendants of the lost found nation of Islam in the wilderness of North America. All right. Uh, first, you have the first breakaway group from the, the old nation of Islam was called the 5% nation of Islam, founded by Clarence Pudding 13X. Now, let me explain to you how uh, they came up with these names. You know, there's Malcolm X and then there's Clarence 13X and, and so on, George 5X. How do they come up with these names? Well, here was the theory behind it. Um, they claim that we don't know our real names, that the names we have were names that we inherited from our slave masters. That's the slave name. That's not our real name. Our real names were unknown. And so when one joins the nation of Islam, remember, one of the key things is the whole idea of, is, uh, the whole idea of identity and dignity. And so you join the nation, and you don't know your name, so you call it X. So if I was to join the nation, the nation of Islam, uh, say if I was the first person named Carl to join, then I would be Carl X. Now, later on, another person named Carl would join the nation, and he'd be known as Carl 2X, and so on and so on. So Clarence 13X was the 13th Clarence to join Temple Number 7 in New York. But he broke away and started the 5% Nation of Islam. Now, I'll, I will explain their doctrines in just a little bit. And then... Um, after that, in 1976, another group broke away, 
and uh, it was called the Lost Found Nation of Islam, founded by Silas Muhammad. And then uh, the most famous group was founded by uh, Louis Farrakhan. It was a split, and they called themselves the Original Nation of Islam. Then there was another group that broke away called the Nation of Islam, founded by John Muhammad in 1978. And then another group called the Nation of Islam broke away and, called, and, and, and was founded by a, naming, a man named uh, Khalif Emmanuel Muhammad. And then in 1997 about uh, another man claiming to have taken a, a grand tour through the universe in a small spaceship. And in that, uh, in that journey, he came to understand who he really was. His name was Solomon. And when he came back to earth, he founded the United Nation of Islam. And Solomon is now known as Solomon Allah in person. <laughs> well, uh, he and uh, Louis Farrakhan, I don't think, hit it off too well. And then in 1994, uh, the latest of these Nation of Islam groups started. Uh, it's founded by Khalid Abdul Muhammad, and it's called the New Black Muslim Movement. And so those are the theological descendants of the lost foundation of Islam in the wilderness of North America. Now, there are several mainline Muslim groups uh, among African Americans, and if you remember uh, what I said earlier, that uh, uh, most African American Muslims are mainline. They are, they are Sunni, Shiite, Sufi, or Ahmadiyya, but most of the mainline Muslims are Sunnis. So here are your mainline Muslim groups. First, the Ahmadiyya movement. It was established in America by Mufti Muhammad Sadiq in 1921. Uh, he, uh, this movement really was, was uh, designed to come and to bring revival and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and renewal to uh, Muslims who were from India living here. But they got such a, uh, a response from African-Americans that it caught on, and, and, and it became a major African-American group. Now, the second one that actually founded was, was started was, uh, it's called the, if I can get this right, the Al-Hanif Hanafi Mahab Center Islam Faith United States of America, American Muslims, founded by a man who used to be known as Ernest T. McGee, and he changed his name to Khalifa Hamas Abdul Khalis. Now, this group is just known as the Hanafis. Now, if you know anything about Islam, you know that the Hanafis uh, represent one of the major schools of jurisdic uh, jurisprudence in Islam. But uh, Ernest T. McGee, or Khalifa Hamas Abdul Khalis, was an Orthodox Muslim. He was a Hanafi, and he joined the Nation of Islam with the hope of transforming the nation into an Orthodox group. He failed and therefore left the nation and founded the Hanafis in 1958. Uh, you may not know this man, but if you've been around, if you know the news uh, that happened in the 1970s in America, and around about 1976, uh, Khalifa Hamas Abdul Khalis uh, led a, um, an invasion of three major buildings of Washington, D.C., and held a number of hostages. But he did this in response to uh, some attacks on his family that resulted in the death of several close family members by members of the Nation of Islam in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, Khalifa Hamas Abdul Khalis is now in prison. 
uh, for the acts that he did uh, in Washington, D.C. And then you have the Muslim American Society. Of course, you know what that is. That, that's what used to be the old nation of Islam. And uh, it was led by the late Warith D. Muhammad in 1978. Now, remember I said there are, there are several mainline groups. There, are, there were the Sunnis, and of course there were Sufis. Now, Sufi Muslims are mystical Muslims. They are mystical. And among the, there are two major Sufi groups among African Americans. One's called the Mishkabanayas, and the other is called the Tijanayas. And they are part of the mix. So when you put all these things together, uh, and there are other groups too, there are about 17 major Islamic groups among African Americans. Some are Orthodox and some are black nationalists. There are more black nationalist groups than Orthodox groups, but the Orthodox groups uh, outnumber the black nationalist groups. Now let's look at some of the doctrines of these groups. And, uh, and, and this will begin to open up some things for you. Now, if you remember, we talked about three cultural core concerns uh, that were uh, very important. Now, remember, core concerns are issues and or values which are life-controlling and life-defining. Um, so, here they go. These, remember, and, and these black nationalist groups specifically attempted to fill the theological vacuum uh, surrounding empowerment, dignity, identity, and significance. So let's look at that a little bit. Let's look at some of their doctrines. First, um, <clears throat> the, the doctrines of Noble Jew Ali, who was the founder of the Moorish Temple of Science. Noble Jew Ali claimed to be a prophet after the order of, of Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius. Now, the book containing his teachings is called The Quran of the Moorish Holy Temple of Science. And, of course, this was developed by Noble Jew Ali. Now, here are their beliefs uh, in brief um, based on his teachings. This is what he says. Individuals need a national identity before they can have a God or a religion. You see this? This is addressing the whole idea of identity. God is, a, is, is tied to a nation, said Ali. And the original nation of the black man was Morocco. So now he's settling a, a mystery. Where did we come from? And therefore, uh, black people were originally Moors. And that's why they call themselves the Moorish Temple of Science. He also taught that the original God of the black man was Allah, and the, religion, the original religion of the black man was Muslimism. That's exactly the way he said it. He went on to teach that North America was, was originally a part of Africa, therefore it rightly belongs to the black man. What does that speak to? That speaks to significance. Uh, this is our land, okay? Jesus is very important, a very important person in his uh, teaching, but he is not seen as the son of God. This is what he said. Salvation comes by discovering one's true identity. Again, identity plays a very important part. Uh, salvation comes, therefore, if you discover your true identity, then you will refuse to be called Negro, black, or colored. Because all three of those uh, terms signify something that's painted. That you would also refuse to be called Ethiopian. But it, 
be insisting, insisting on being called either Asiatic or Moors or Moorish Americans. And those are his teachings. And again, he's trying to address the issues of empowerment, the issues related to empowerment, which are dignity, identity, and significance. Well, when Noble Drew Ali died in 1929, as I said before, there was, a, uh, there was confusion. And, uh, and W.D. Fard, uh, if you look at this picture, this is very interesting if you see it, um, he, um, he headed up one division called the, and he called it the Temple of Islam. Now, this is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be a reincarnation of Noble Drew Ali. He also claimed to be a wealthy man from the tar- tribe of Quraysh. And if you remember, if you, if you know anything about Islam, you know that that was a tribe of Muhammad. Um, okay. He also claimed to be the Mahdi, the, 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 the Messiah-like figure who would come at the end and straighten things out, or the guided one of the end times. He also claimed to be the prophet who's, uh, who, that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 18. He also claimed to be the leader of the nation of Islam. And, of course, that's why I call it the Temple of Islam. He's the, the nation is this, a group of people, and the temple is a religious expression. And later on in his life, he claimed to be Allah himself. Now, from what I can see, the earliest time that that actually came out was um, when he and, and Elijah Muhammad, who was, his, uh, who was his mentee, they were sitting at a meeting, and he leaned over and he asked Elijah Muhammad, he says, who am I? And Elijah Muhammad said, I believe you're Allah himself. And he says, that's very wise, but they'll keep it to yourself right now. W.D. Fard claimed to have the remedies for the social, economic, and economic problems facing uh, people of African descent. And he claimed as his mission to gain freedom, justice, and equality for the black man. His message was simply this. Christianity is a tool in the hands of the white slave masters to control the minds of black people. He also taught that white people are devils, the very embodiment of evil. Now look at his picture. What's wrong with this picture? I have information on him, which I will share with you later. But obviously, well, I'll just say this. The picture speaks for itself. The only hope, he said, for the black man is in, in America is total separation and self-reliance. You see, here was the problem. If the white man is the devil, then if you're in his company, if you're in the same society with him, his evil will rub off on you. It, it, it makes some sense, doesn't it? You know, the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate, you see. And so he was saying, get away from these devils. They are the ones that are causing all your problems. Their evil is rubbing off on you. And that's why he began to to say that what we need is our own state, uh, an African-American state of some kind, somewhere in America or elsewhere, so we can get away from the white devils and we can be the righteous people that we really are. Um, I like to say that if I had the money, as a great evangelistic tool, I would have given him his, his state. I would have given him his land and say, I'll see you in about 20 years to see what happens. And, of course, we know what would happen because we know all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he would discover that we are sinners too. The basis of his teaching were these. The Quran, of course, twisted verses from it. The Bible, again, twisted versions, you know, twisted uh, interpretations. Freemason literature, and his own writing. 
And among his writings were, first, the secret ritual of the nation of Islam, which can only be translated orally, and uh, the teaching for the lost found nation of Islam in a mathematical way. Uh, this was written in a secret symbolic language that only Fard himself could understand. So that's the bit on, on W.D. Fard. Now, what happened to him was simply this, that he was implicated in a ritual killing. And as a result, he got into deep trouble with the police. And eventually, he withdrew from the Temple of Islam. And, of course, um, Elijah Muhammad, one of his lieutenants, uh, became one of the leaders. He led the, the faction called the Nation of Islam. Somebody else led something called the Temple of Islam, which eventually collapsed and was reabsorbed, reabsorbed back into the nation. So W.D. Ford eventually had to just totally withdraw from the movement. And, of course, if you hear the Muslims tell it, the people in the Nation of Islam, he just disappeared, kind of like a theophany of some kind. Well, the fact is that uh, the evidence points to the fact that he actually left and went out to California and lived to be just about 100 uh, before he died sometime in the early 90s. Now, let's talk about Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad uh, uh, succeeded as leader of the Nation of Islam in 1934 until his death in 1975. And this is what he argued. He said, quote, you must forget about ever seeing the return of Jesus who was here 2,000 years ago. He said, set your mind or set your heart uh, on seeing the one he said would come at the end of the present world, the present world's time. And this present world is he, what, what he defines as the white man's time. Um, this is he is the, he is the son of man or Christ or the comforter. And he's not talking about Christ as we know him. But who he's talking about is W.D. Fard. He said it couldn't be Jesus because he didn't know the day or the hour of his coming, so he couldn't have been talking about himself. He couldn't have been talking about his own return. Um, he also taught that, that W.D. Fard was the Mahdi spoken of in the Quran. Now, this is what Elijah Muhammad uh, advocated. He advocated this. He said integration. And remember, he came along and he became very well known during the 60s, during the time of the Civil Rights Movement. He... he he, he said basically that integration was a hypocritical and deceptive offer which must be rejected. He also said that uh, uh, the, the integration was also intended to trick black people into believing that the opponents of their freedom and their justice uh, and, and, and equality were their friends. So, the, the, you know, your em enemies are, are posing uh, as friends, so therefore we must stay away from them. The ultimate solution, he said, to the problems of the black man is in total separation from white society and establishing a black Muslim state somewhere in North America or elsewhere. Just like uh, W.D. Fart, he, he advocated this. Now, here was a six-point program. If you, if you looked at the Nation of Islam, it, you could sum it up in these six points. Racial pride and unity. Next, moral discipline. Economic development. Notice what's going on here. Remember the Free Africa Society that I talked about last time? The Free Africa Society did much of this, but it was a Christian organization. So what Elijah Muhammad was talking about was nothing new. 
But of course, what had happened during the 1960s, many of us had forgotten our own history. So, racial pride and unity, moral discipline, economic development, territorial separation. We talked about that already in terms of they wanted to start a, uh, their own state. Pooling resources to build black business. And number six would be mythological metaphysics. And this was Elijah Muhammad's explanation of the origin of the black man and the root of white racism. And so white racism was a reality that we had to deal with. And this is, um, well, this was it, if I could put it together for you. This was what, this is how he explains the origin of white racism. He said, and I paraphrase, that black, black people were originally moon men. And were, <laughs> they lived on the moon and were originally called moon men. The moon exploded into two parts, and those who survived the catastrophe came to earth and inhabited the holy city of Mecca. Yaqub, a man named Yaqub, was a black mad scientist, also known as Adam. And in an act of rebellion against Allah, he created a white devil race through crude generic, I mean, ge genetic uh, engineering. Now, here's how the story goes, and I have it right here. Mr. Yaqub, whose head was unusually large, was preaching dissatisfaction in the streets of Mecca, and he gained a large following. Eventually, him and his 59,999 followers were exiled to the island of Patmos. Yaqub became bitter towards Allah and decided as, re as a revenge to create a devil race. Now here's how the crude generic, genetic engineering happened. He knew that the black man contained two germs, black and brown, and that the brown germ was weaker, morally weaker. Mr. Yaqub died before completing his task, but he left rules and instructions for his followers to follow after his death. So what had happened was that when you had black babies and brown babies, they would only let brown babies of brown, when they grew up, they would only let brown people marry other brown people and black people marry other black people. Now, all black babies then were killed at birth. So eventually there were only brown people left. Now, he knew that the brown man had two germs. One brown and one red. So after the black people were eliminated, then they began to eliminate the brown people. Kill the brown babies at birth, keep the red ones alive. Browns would marry browns, red was, reds would marry reds. Eventually, that eliminated the brown people. But then he knew that the, brown, the, the red man had two germs, one red, one yellow. So after all the brown people are gone, then the reds would marry reds, the yellows would marry yellows, and, of course, eventually you get rid of the red man. And then he knew that, guess what? The yellow man had two germs, one yellow, one white. And you know the rest of the story. And so eventually he created this, this and for some reason, because of the lack of melanin in their skin or whatever, they were the morally, morally the weakest and were most possessed by the devil. So they became a race of devils and eventually returned to the mainland where they began to turn the peaceful heaven on earth into a hell. Torn, torn by quarreling and fighting. According to the myth, 
Allah sent Moses to civilize the whites. So you begin to see an interpretation of the Exodus story. And, uh, and, and Allah was so angry that he said for the next 6,000 years, black people will have to live under the, under the ruthless, evil rule of the white devils. They would have to experience their devil, devilishness firsthand through enslavement in America. But Allah did not forget his people. He sent Master W.D. Farr to tell Allah's message to Elijah Muhammad, who would tell it to North America. And the good news is that the 6,000 years ended in 1914. Well, now that really shows that Elijah Muhammad was under, uh, as he came up, and, and, and I have documentation for this, uh, he was under the influence of some Jehovah's Witnesses. So according to him, North America was now the spiritual wilderness of the black man. And Elijah Muhammad, he claimed, Elijah Muhammad claimed to be the prophet of Islam, not Muhammad. As a matter of fact, while Elijah Muhammad was alive, um, uh, he was alive during the Six-Day War, I remember. And uh, he said the reason the Arabs lost to the Israelis was because those Muslims over there would not submit to the true Islam, which was headed by him. Now, here are some of the religious practices of the nation of Islam. They pray five times a day. Um, but in their case, prayers are directed to W.D. Fard, who is Allah in the flesh. Again, check out the picture. This is very interesting. Their dietary prohibitions include all pork products, lima beans, cabbage, catfish, shrimp, oysters, and fish weighing over 50 pounds that lack scales. All right. Now here are, so that's basically the nation of Islam. Now another group sprang up I mentioned called the Nubian Islamic Hebrews. And uh, they're another group. They're, 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 they're trying to explain uh, the nature of race. They're trying to address the issues of dignity, identity, and significance. Here are the racial beliefs of the Nubian Islamic Hebrews. Noah had three sons, one of whom was Ham, and Ham tried to commit sodomy with his drunk and naked father. In response, Noah put a curse on Canaan, the son of Ham. And as a result, Canaan's skin became very, very pale. So you see that's kind of the opposite of the old Ham myth, which says uh, that uh, black people were cursed because Ham was supposed to have looked at his father and laughed and all that. Uh, by the way, that is an Islamic myth, the whole thing about uh, black people being cursed because of Ham. But according to Nubian Islamic Hebrews, the curse was turning his skin pale, you see. So... So, um, so eventually, uh, uh, you know, Canaan, the Canaanites became, the, the, or Canaan became the father of the white race. Now, some Nubians intermarried with the white outcast of Canaan. And as a result, the following races emerged. The Chinese, the East Indians, the Eskimos, the Indonesians, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Malaysians, the Pakistanis, and the Sicilians. Now, uh, 
All of these were, were the result of the intermarriage between the original righteous black people and this, and this Canaanite white race. Well, but though they are not pure black, they are considered to be black anyway. Now, two additional nations came from Ibrahim, Ibrahim or Abraham. The descendants of Ishmael, namely the, um, or just the descendants of Ishmael, the Ishmaelites, and the descendants of Isaac, the Israelites. The Israelites were held in Egyptian slavery or Egyptian bondage for 400, 4, 000, 400 years, I'm sorry. And the Ishmaelites were held in American slavery for 400 years. So you see there's a parallel between the, the, the Hebrew experience and the African-American experience. That's one of the reasons why they call themselves uh, Nubian Islamic Hebrews. They are Islamic, but they are Hebrews. All right. And out of this experience uh, came the black people of North America and the Caribbeans and the Caribbean. So that's the that's the that's the essence of the Nubian Islamic Hebrews. Again, these doctrines may seem very strange and, and all, but they there's some they, they make some sense if you understand them in the context of trying to address the empowerment, cultural core concerns of dignity, identity, and significance. I, I alluded at, at, at the last le- last uh, lecture. I said that if you ever wonder what causes tornadoes, and you never found out, and somebody says trailer parks caused them, well, then it does answer the question, even though it's not right. So we come to um, Louis Farrakhan, who is an interesting guy, to say the least. Uh, he has a theological scheme, okay? And his scheme, uh, it, it, it kind of has a, uh, an upper layer and a lower layer to it. Now, if you look at the diagram, you'll see a line going across. And the, the lower layer, I call it the, the, the oil layer and the water layer. The water layer is what Farrakhan wants you to see. The oil layer is how he sees it. Let me explain this. In the water layer, he wants you to understand that he has discovered the universal theology that interfaces with the the nation of Islam, Orthodox Islam, African-American Christianity, and ancestor worship. If any of you are con- computer geeks, I guess I can explain it this way. He wants you to believe that he's found the universal operating system that that works with Windows, DOS, Macintosh, and Unix. I have actually heard him in speeches go into the mosque and say the Shahada in perfect Arabic. And I've heard him come to the nation of Islam and, and say, I am the representative of Elijah Muhammad on earth. And then I've heard him preach in churches saying things like, I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And everybody said, oh, maybe he's saved. No, that's not true. And I've heard him say that I spent the morning communing with the ancestors in worship. So he wants you to think that, he, he wants you to see that that he has the universal 
theology that interfaces with all four of these things. Now, how does he see it? He sees all of this as what I would call the neo-nation of Islam. It's kind of an interdenominational nation of Islam. And uh, he sees himself as floating above the fray and all that. He sees himself as, as a matter of fact, it's the neo-nation of Islam. And he is the embodiment and fulfillment of it. He's the, he is, in essence, the renaissance man of religion. Okay, so that's his theological scheme. It has a, an oil layer on top and a water layer on the bottom. The water layer is what he wants you to see. The oil layer is how he sees it. Now, there's another aspect to his theology, and it has something to do with messianic fulfillment. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? And here's how he explains it, and I've heard him actually say this. He says, in history... There were three significant characters. There was the historic uh, Jesus, the historic Muhammad, and the historic Elijah. Neither one of these were the real deal. But they, to put it in his words, they prefigured one who was to come. So Jesus was not the true Jesus. He prefigured the coming of the true Jesus. Muhammad was not the true Muhammad. He prefigured the coming of the true Muhammad. And Elijah, the same thing. So who do they point to? Who do they prefigure? Who is the true son of man, the true Messiah, the true Elijah, the true Muhammad? Who is this? According to Louis Farrakhan, it was none other than Elijah Muhammad. He was the true Messiah, the true Muhammad, the true Elijah. But there was one problem in the scheme, and that is Elijah Muhammad claimed to be the last messenger. He said, after my death, there will be no, nobody coming. It'll be the end of time. So how does one explain then why it didn't end? One of the things that those, the thinkers in the nation of Islam do, they do what I call pro progressive mythologization. It's like, you, you know, the Bible comes in progressive revelation. Uh, Adam, and, Adam and Eve, uh, God says, uh, I'm going to send the seed of the woman to get you out of this mess and get this mess out of you. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah. But he couched it in terms that com communicated to their concern. They were wondering if they were going to have children. So God says, I'll send the seed of the woman, and he will save you. Later on, we learn that uh, this one to come is going to be called the uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And we, we, we also learn he's going to be the Lamb of God. Uh, and later on, that's progressive revelation. And eventually, when you come to Jesus, you see the, the fulfillment of all of that. Well, that's how... They do in the nation of Islam, but only as progressive mythologization. So what do you do with the final messenger once he's dead? You progressively mythologize. Now, this comes straight out of uh, Louis Farrakhan's mouth. He stated, he has stated that he is the resurrection of Elijah Muhammad. 
So he is the second Messiah. He's the resurrection of Elijah Muhammad. So Jesus, Muhammad, and Elijah point to Elijah Muhammad. He's dead. Louis Farrakhan is the resurrection of Elijah Muhammad. Um, so it's kind of interesting. He's a very articulate man, and he, and he goes around. And if you listen to what he says, uh, it's like he, he puts things together in such a way that you can draw a conclusion without him actually saying it. But he's very articulate, and it's very interesting to see how he believes and how he, how he, how he responds. A lot of people, uh, a lot of Christians think, well, maybe he's a Christian. A lot of Muslims think that maybe he's a Muslim, and on and on. But in my estimation, it seems that he holds these beliefs um, not so much in a literal sense, but more, more or less in a figurative sense. He may not believe they're true, but he believes them anyway. And, uh, and anyway, that's where he is. So if you want to understand the nature of those doctrines, that's it. But the thing that you've got to understand, and I'll just leave you with this, that all these groups... We're trying to fill the theological vacuum left when the church got tripped up at the end of the 19th century. They were trying to address the empowerment issues of dignity, identity, and significance. And that is the best way to understand that. If you're going to minister to someone in one of these groups, you have to understand that. And as you minister to them, you get beneath the surface and begin to address those cultural core concerns biblically. And I guarantee you that they will sit up and take notice. And they will be affected because the scripture does not return void. Thank you.